0: welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we have a very informative program for you, especially if you're one who follows industry news and may be looking to move their practice forward through a purchase, merger, or buyout. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and we'll be discussing scope, causes, and formative factors behind the increased M&A activity being seen in the RIA industry landscape in recent months with our guest, Scott Del Orfano. Chief Strategic Officer at Congress Wealth Management. Mr. DeLarfano, who is based in Jupiter, Florida, joined Congress Wealth Management from Boston Private Wealth, where he served as President and Chief Operating Officer, and was responsible for corporate strategy and acquisitions. Prior to Boston Private Wealth, Mr. DeLarfano was a member of the firm's executive management team and served on the Boston Private Bank and Trust Companies Policy Group. Before joining Boston Private Wealth in 2014, Mr. Dell'Arfano was Executive Vice President of Fidelity Institutional Wealth Services Group. Received his BS in economics from Union College. Scott, welcome to the program. We're excited to have you here today.
1: Thanks, Dave, and I'm excited to be here. Happy to spend some time with you.
0: Normally, with someone of your caliber on this program, we'd be having a high-level industry-related conversation. But our listeners have made requests in the past to offer more concrete, practical information. So I'd like to go in that direction if we could.
1: Great. Happy to do it.
0: Well, thank you so much. First, let's open our discussion and make sure there's something really to discuss. Is there really an uptick in the amount of MA activity among RIAs, or is it more anecdotal based on media headlines that feed that perception? Is it really happening, or are we just hearing more about it?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Dave. I, anecdotally, it, it feels like there's been an uptick. Um, as you mentioned, the media is all over m a you can't go to an industry conference without having some breakout session on M&A. And, and I personally know a lot of firms that are either in the process of selling or buying other companies. But um, there have been a number of reports uh, that get published. One specifically that I, I follow is is um, a firm called Devoe & Company, who's one, one of the larger um, consultants in the M&A space, in the RAA industry. And I, I just was looking at his, his last annual report, um, uh, quarterly report, excuse me, uh, that that came out in second quarter of 2021. And, and it's interesting, it does prove or show that there's been an uptick in activity. Uh, just to give you some numbers, in 2019, in the RAA space, there were 101 M&A transactions completed. Um, that increased even during the pandemic in 2020, uh, where there was where there was 151 um, deals that were completed, um, and for the first half of 2021, uh, so six months into this year, there's been over 107 deals completed. So if if you follow the trend line, we're looking at more than a 50% increase in activity um, this year in 2021, and and that goes in uh. Along the same lines as what we're feeling anecdotally.
0: Wow, that's a huge increase. Now, what do you think is the main force driving that big jump?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's three things, and I get asked this question quite a bit. N- number one, you naturally have an aging population of advisors, right? So there's a lot of advisors that that have been in this space for a number of years that um, are looking at retiring and trying to figure out how to monetize what they've built and and sell their firm. Secondly, the financial markets haven't hurt, right? So the market, markets being at all-time highs, valuations are up. Um, I think people are thinking, hey, maybe it's time to create some liquidity, take some chips off the table. And I think that's driving a lot of sellers uh, to look at potential, um, you know, potentially selling their firm. And, And thirdly, and even probably more importantly, I think there's more liquidity that's come into the space. You know, a number of years ago, um, there you had your 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 short list of roll up firms. Uh, you had some large advisors that were starting to acquire, uh, but in the last twelve to eighteen months, there's been an enormous amount of private equity money that's coming into the space, which once again is inflating valuations and creating a lot of liquidity um, um, that that's out there for sellers.
0: There's a lot of information buried in there. We're going to come back to that in just a bit. Most of the listeners in this program are smaller solo practices or small ensembles, some of whom might be in a position to grow their business by a merger or buyout of another firm. Is there a fee model that makes more practical sense? Is there a more favorable model that buyers are looking for in terms of how they charge their clients?
1: Yeah, I can tell you that uh, recurring revenue, so the the fee-based sort of only model is carrying the highest multiple for a seller. So I know there's a number of firms that are called what, what, uh, what is known as a hybrid advisor where they have some commissionable broker dealer business along with their fee business. And there's nothing wrong with that model. Um, however, that tends to drive a little bit lower multiple on a sale. So I, I think overwhelmingly, um, firms are looking to buy recurring revenue and, uh, fee only, uh, RIA models tend to be, the highest multiple gatherer, if you will.
0: Okay. Uh, so if you're in, in, a, in a fee-only situation uh, that's got recurring revenue, you should be fine. Um, are there changes or improvements that an IRA can make to prepare for a purchase that makes them more attractive, either to private equity or to a larger firm looking to buy? Yeah.
1: You know, once again, if if, if you have a profile of an RIA that's, um, wants to join or merge or partner with another firm, then I think it's incumbent on that firm to be really specific about what their value proposition is to clients. Right. I've I've talked to a number of firms in the past that are sort of all over the pit place on, you know, what makes them different and what type of clients they serve. But I, I really feel like um, firms that can be crisp on what makes them different. Um, and what their value proposition is to clients, I think, makes a big difference. I think firms that run efficiently and have efficiently run practices, so not over-leveraged, not over-technologized, um, not over-staffed, I think carry a higher multiple. Um, and I think at the end of the day, the practitioners of the firms looking to sell need, need to be able to articulate... What is it they want to do and what is it they're good at? And what are some of the things that they want to offload to the potential buyer? So there's a couple of sort of sound bites, if you will. I think that makes sense.
0: So really lean and mean and making sure that things run efficiently and smoothly and are going to remain profitable. Right, And 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 being crisp
1: on your value proposition of what makes you different and what you offer to clients, I think are important.
0: We've talked a lot on this program about differentiation and and how you can narrow that value prop to really hone in on exactly what your value is. So that's a good follow up to almost all of our other episodes. Thank you. Um, There are some advisors that might benefit from this, but have really hesitated to uh, dip their toe in the water. What are the three top concerns you're seeing among advisors um, about taking the step and maybe merging with somebody or being sold? Yeah.
1: I, I, I think there's an inherent, um, I don't want to give up control, um, Issue. So, you know, many advisors, are, especially smaller firms, they they run their own business, they run their own practice, they make decisions on a daily basis. Um, and and when you sell your your firm, you are you are selling, right? So so all of a sudden, you're offloading some of those responsibilities to the buyer. And I think that's one thing people struggle with: is do I really want to give up uh, my independence and my decision making capability? Um, I, I also think um for firms it's really important that there's alignment philosophically on the business and what what i mean by that do they share the same um client service model um as the, as the firm that's buying them do they believe in the same investment methodology do they believe that the industry is heading in the same way so there's going to be a lot of touch points on on synergies and beliefs that align in order to make for a for a good acquisition or a successful acquisition, I should say.
0: So really, you've got to align your mindset, align your operations and align your Correct. culture in picking a partner to begin with, let alone getting all the way through the transition and then uh, enacting the sale and after. Correct. Um, you've mentioned uh, sales price and multiple several times mm-hmm. earlier, just uh, to touch on one part. Has that multiple gone up recently because of the extra influx of money and the extra activity? Is it driving the multiple in a different way than it normally would be? And what would be a typical multiple to expect from a small firm, do you think?
1: Yeah. So statistically, quoting some of those earlier studies I mentioned, multiples are, are definitely up year over year. Um, and and tip buyers typically um, put multiples against one or the other metric. Either they're paying a multiple of revenue for you know, a, a one, two, Three-person firm; it's more like a solo practitioner type of of firm, or if it's a larger uh, company, multiple employees, uh, you know, a, a larger management team, et cetera. The typical purchase is a multiple of EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, and appreciation. So, in those have uh, year over year, they've they've ticked up especially with the liquidity in the space and, and you know, based on what you read and what's disclosed publicly, what firms are getting sold for.
0: Hmm. Now, we, we can count on at least a multiple of what? One and a half for a functioning firm, maybe two. Are there really firms that stand out and, and command a much higher multiple for specific reasons?
1: Yeah, so, so uh, on the, on the uh, smaller firm side... And if we're looking at a multiple of revenue, I, I would think on the low end right now, the bar is set at around two times revenue. And that can be up as high as four times revenue based on, on a couple of key metrics when firms are selling. So what are those metrics? One is, uh, what's the growth rate of the firm? Has the firm flatlined? Are they growing at 10 15 20% a year? Obviously, if there's greater top line growth, that's going to drive the multiple. What the client base looks like. So is, is, there a, um, is there a nice um, potpourri of clients or is there, are there two clients that carry the entire AUM of the firm? And if you lose one of those clients, that could disrupt your economics. So uh, the client base definitely drives, drives multiple. And then, you know, once again, the third thing I've mentioned this, Dave, is what is the, what is the um, value add that that firm is going to bring? When acquired, so so what's the unique capability or or gap that they're going to fill for the firm that's acquiring, and all those things are at the end of the day what drive the multiple either up or down.
0: So it really does come back to fit um, in
1: all of this. Yeah, fit in in composition of the company, right? The client composition, you know. Once again, the fit of the people. What's the value prop they're offering? You, you know. So yeah, fit and uh, composition of the business, I would say.
0: Okay. So on a practical level, I mean, when when there's lots of of mental preparation and and searching to go on, once you've sort of found what you think might be a match, what's the first thing a small firm should do to prepare for the sale? Do you need to get a valuation? Do you need an audit that's certified? Uh, can you boost up profitability in the short term to make you look more attractive? How do you, how do you go about preparing? Well, for-
1: one, one suggestion to your point, Dave, is I, I would always recommend a firm gets a valuation from a third party. So at least their level set on what an outside party thinks the value of their firm is, um, because it's, it's natural that a- any business owner that's been attached to a business for 30, 40, 50 years is going to be emotionally tied to that practice. So I think you want to be able to step back and get a third-party valuation based on the makeup of the business on what what's the range of what the business is is worth. I think that's a, an important first step. A, a seller is typically going to ask for a couple of things. They're usually going to ask for at least one, if not two or three years of audited financials. Right. So they're going to want to see tax returns. They're going to want to see the P&L uh, and the financials of the firm. Going back as as long as you can, but typically two to three years is required. They're going to w- want to see a client roster, not not name by name, but client A, B, C, and D. There, because what they w- what a firm is going to look for in the client list is what I said before. They're going to want to make sure there's good diversity in the client base, and not and not that the revenue is skewed to just a few large clients, but it's it's well sort of laid out across the book. Uh, they're going to want to see all the documents, so your, your, your technology, um, uh, vendor relationship agreements, any employment agreements you have with other employees, uh, lease agreements. So they're going to have to review all the agreements. So there's three or four things that are pretty standard in what's asked for when someone's looking at buying a firm in due diligence.
0: That's a lot to think about. And I think our advisors are scurrying around wondering where they can find those things at this point. We're going to take a break for a couple of minutes and we'll be back. When we come back, we're going to talk about retention. We're going to talk about scheduling and a whole bunch more. We'll be right back.
2: Are you an RIA or financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, but feel like you could use some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time helping clients instead of time consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a range of outsource options and professional investment management and financial planning support, Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions has a solution that fits your needs, budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. Call to get more information or set up an appointment with a representative at 201-919-4838.
0: And we're back with Scott Delarfano of Congress Wealth Management. Scott, we've talked about a lot of things that, that firms should do to get prepared for this. Um, how long should all this purchase take to finalize? Have you got a, a run-up of maybe two or three months and then maybe six to do the diligence and, and put all the pieces in place, let the lawyers argue, and then another two months beyond that to close? Is that roughly a good schedule?
1: Yeah, there's... Uh... Yes, but it's a little bit I, I would say it's a little bit different. So so usually there's a long courting process, right? So firms get under the covers of do they like each other? Um, you know, is, is this a good fit? Is there a cultural relationship? And then there's a there's a letter of intent that is signed. And usually that's a I don't know, three to four month process with a lot of courting, a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls, meeting the people. There's an LOI that that is signed at the end of that phase, and then you move into due diligence. And in due diligence is where I mentioned they'll be looking at financials, agreements, employment contracts, things of that nature. That doesn't take that long. Usually that's a, a that could be a 30 to 45-day due diligence period. It could even be accelerated. And then the third component, which is probably the lengthiest component, is the purchase agreement. And that's where attorneys are drafting the document for the purchase of the, of the business and that could be another 2 to 3 month process so on the short end if you condense that timeline you're probably talking about 5 to 6 months on the longer end based on the size complexity of the practice it could extend out you know close to a year that
0: seems like a while but i think it's one of those things where you uh, sort of buy in haste and repent in leisure so it's probably good that things go along give you plenty of time to uh, think about things as you're going now, these transactions aren't really without risk, are they? What are the possible dangers or some downsides to entering into one of these purchase arrangements?
1: Yeah, no, the, the, the biggest risk is you you have uh, clients that don't like the transaction and it gives them an, an excuse to look for another firm. And worst case scenario, clients start to leave in the transition, right? So there's there's risk to the seller and the buyer of that happening. That's probably the number one risk. The number two risk is employees, don't like the transaction for whatever reason they they're not happy with with the new company uh, they feel like they've been marginalized um they don't feel like the communication is going as as advertised and you have flight risk with employees um so you know to to me those are probably the two most significant risks is you either losing client you lose clients or you lose employees that um you know, we're part of the reason that you purchased the firm gotcha
0: um now beyond that do some clients take this uh, sale as an opportunity to to sort of leave the fold and defect and and what can you do to mitigate some of those uh, defections
1: it does happen we have seen that right so typically if a client has been with an advisor or a firm a long a long time um, there's, there's loyalty that's been, been built up both ways from the advisor and from the client. And it, I think it's emotionally difficult to say you're unhappy or you're looking for another solution. So, um, you know, when there is a transaction, innately, that gives an excuse to a potential client to say, hey, I'm not really sure I like the new firm. I'm going to move my account to XYZ company, um, even though it really wasn't that transaction. That spurred it, but it was the excuse that drove the client to look, if, if you know what I'm saying. So so that happens. It doesn't happen a lot. Um, you know, I've probably been involved either side, either buying or selling firms. Um, I've probably been involved, I don't know, in 18 or 20 transactions. And I think the retention rate of clients in every one of those transactions is well over 95%. You know, once again, it's how it's positioned, it's how it's articulated, it's how it's communicated, and hopefully it's additive in the way of services for the client. So there, there's definitely a way to communicate a transaction successfully with clients.
0: So now we've we've kept all our clients, we've merged with our new firm, but we're, we're still not sure how this quite works. Are there uh, firms out there that provide counsels to advisors going through this process? And how would you go about selecting such a firm if, if you were to need one?
1: Yeah, no. There's there's numerous um, consulting firms that actually, uh, you know, they, they'll do deal valuation. They'll do um, um, they'll almost act as your liaison uh, between you know you you and the firm that's that's purchasing your firm, right? They, they stop short of what I'll call an investment banker, right? Because they're truly on one side of the ledger and they're not just in the middle, but they do just what they said. They, what you said, Dave, they counsel you through um, the process. They'll make sure you get a proper valuation for your practice. Uh, They'll make sure you dot the I's and cross the T's when it comes to the actual signing of an agreement. Um, And there are a slew of firms like that uh, representing the RAA community um, if I were selecting a firm to, to assist me, I, I'd make sure it's a firm that obviously has experience, but experiencing dealing with firms of my size, right? So if, if you're a smaller firm, there are firms that specialize in transactions, in helping smaller firms. And likewise, if you're a larger firm, multiple locations, multiple employees, complexity in your business, there are firms that specialize in consulting Um, to firms of of that size. So it really would depend on what your firm profile is on who you would select.
0: Wow, lots to think about there. Uh, We've learned quite a bit today about how this process works and and what that increased M&A activity can mean for smaller advisors. If there's one thing you want uh, members of our audience to take away with them today, what would it be?
1: I, I think that at the end of the day, and we've touched on this, David, is the most important thing in any transaction Transaction is cultural alignment. I, I like the people that I'm going to be working with and I feel like I can better service or they can better service the clients uh, that I've been working with for 40 years. And then make sure that the combination of two firms, one plus one is going to equal four. So so once again, it's, it's, it's not benefiting just the advisor, but there's inherent benefit to the client um, at the end of the combination or merger. I think that's really important. If if those things sort of um, plan out that way, I think you have a really successful relationship going forward.
0: So it really is more of a a marriage and not one of convenience, if I recall. Scott, that's terrific advice. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. I know the audience got an awful lot out of it. I know I learned some things and uh, we really appreciate you joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, David. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis. And if you have questions about how you might start your journey towards selling or expanding your firm through acquisition, just drop us a line here at at Congresswealth.com, and we'll try to get you some answers. As always, thanks for listening.
2: Listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the opinions, legal intent, or nature of Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, or their senior management. Please note that Congress Wealth Management LLC is an independent RIA based in Boston, Massachusetts. More information about Congress Wealth Management LLC can be found on its website. Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, and their senior management believe this information to be accurate and reliable, but does not warrant it as to completeness or accuracy. Due to rapidly changing market conditions and the complexity of investment decisions, supplemental information and other sources may be required to make informed investment decisions based on your individual investment objectives and suitability specifications. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. No portion of this program is to be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell a security or the provision of personalized investment tax or legal advice. Investing entails the risk of loss of principal.